Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Jason Furman, he's senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, the former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. And as of last week, he's professor of the practice of economic policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He's in our 991 studios uh, with Tom in Washington, uh, D.C. Great to have you with us, Jason, and congrats on making your uh, Homeric return to, to Harvard. Thanks so much. <laughs> let, me, let me start by asking you about what we heard from uh, the Treasury Secretary yesterday. He was speaking at an IIF uh, event yesterday, was asked quite a bit about the prospects for tax reform, where things stand, where things are, are headed. And uh, the, the speech, the comments were suffused with optimism. This is going to happen uh, here in the not-too-distant future. What's your sense of, of what's happening? What are the holdups toward getting uh, some indication of what tax reform looks like to this Trump administration. The holdup is the administration hasn't told us what it's in favor of. It First, I thought they were going to let Congress write the plan. That wouldn't be such a terrible thing. The House um, Republican blueprint from last year actually had a lot of good, thoughtful ideas in it. It had some problems, too, but it had a lot of thoughtful ideas, and a lot of thought went into it. Um, the administration said they don't want to go that route. They want to put out their own plan. Um, but we haven't heard what it is. What we heard yesterday, though, was concerning, which is that they want um, a net tax cut rather than a genuine revenue-neutral tax reform. And I don't think um, a tax cut is something that you could get bipartisan support for. And without bipartisan support, I don't think you can really do the types of reforms we need to do um, to make our tax code more efficient and more competitive. You've been in Washington a while, so let me get some insight from you into into this process. A lot of people saying it's it's uh, overly ambitious to think you could get tax reform done quickly. These type of things take a very long time. But when you're dealing with something like this, the longer it plays out, does it become more complicated as you get more people sort of fighting over what goes in and what, what comes out? There's an interplay. At some point, you don't want the fish lying on the dock too long because uh-huh. it just starts to starts to smell. Um, but it takes a while to figure out how to get to that point, And then you strike and try to move as quickly as possible. The last time we did tax reform, the Treasury put out a two-volume, really comprehensive study in 1984. Congress spent the next two years. They made it worse. <laughs> they added all sorts of transition rules, giveaways, took out some of the good things. Um, but what came out of it was still a lot better than um, the the law ex ante. And that was a two-year process. I mean, part of this is even just technically complicated. People talk about, you know, border adjustment or ending interest deductions. Those are really tricky things to figure out the details. You need proposals out there so people can discuss and, and work on that, and they're just not right now. You've been in the White House working on, on policy in concert with, with the Congress. What's your sense of, of what that relationship is like today? In other words, do, do you get the sense here that when it comes to tax reform, Republicans in Congress are working in concert with the White House, or are we seeing sort of a parallel track here? You're seeing um, a bit of a parallel track. Um, in fact, three different tracks. Um, you have the House, which is in favor of border adjustment. 
you have the White House, which up until recently hadn't decided, although now maybe it seems like they're against it. Mm. And then you have the Senate, which is um, opposed to anything um, the House is in favor of. And these three tracks I'm talking about right now, all three of them are Republican tracks. So, um, you know, really the hope we have would be to get on the same page, and that page should be revenue neutral. It should be distribution neutral. That still leaves a lot of room for a 1986-style tax yeah. reform with lower tax rates that would help our economy. Uh, Jason Furman with us. He's a former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. I was bragging about you in TV about the public good for Republicans, Democrats, for the politically disaffected on the state of the nation's labor force. It's international economics here, and we're doing steel tariffs and the rest. What was the key surprise for you and your August team when you did look at labor participation in the, this mystery of our unemployed? Mm. What was the thing that, that jumped out at you? That the problem dates back a lot further than most people realize. It's not just this recession and recovery. Well, well, give me, I mean, help me. Martin Van Buren? <laughs> um, uh, Eisenhower goes back to the 1950s. <laughs> Seriously, to Eisenhower. And the problem's yeah. been the problem's been growing since the 1950s. Okay. It's been growing steadily. When I met you, you we were talking about Han Solo, which is a lovely monograph from the 50s. Frankly, from our growthiness and our study of growthiness of 1957 and 58. Can we use those same theories now, or do you guys have to come up with a new regime? of theory to get people employed in America. I think some of those classic growth models from uh, the 1950s help us understand and diagnose the problem. And one of the problems we have right now is very low productivity growth. Part of that is low total factor productivity, which is a measure of innovation and a way of thinking about it, um, and trying to understand what we can do better there um, if, we don't, if we don't have faster productivity growth, we're not going to be able to have faster mm -hmm. wage growth. And that's why the business tax reform we're talking about, for example, is one of the important ingredients in getting our productivity growth up. Are we getting any better at measuring productivity? Uh, Tom knows I was talking with Steve Ballmer, former CEO of Microsoft, earlier this week. He's uh, very into data and his new <laughs> website looking up yep. data. But, but he's also been thinking about how we measure productivity with technology uh, in specific. Are we getting any better at doing it? I don't think we're getting any better at doing it, but I'm not as convinced as a lot of people are that we're getting a whole lot worse at doing it either. There's a lot we were missing 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, I think the productivity slowdown is real, and I think it's because the innovation we're seeing is concentrated in a relatively narrow slice of our economy, and you average over the economy as a whole, which includes construction and um, you know, education and all sorts of things, um, on average, you're not seeing the type of productivity growth we'd like to see. The president has named your successor, uh, Kevin Hass, that's going to head up the Council of Economic Advisors now in his administration. Give us a sense of, of how the, the, the council works. Will he set an objective and agenda for the council? Does it tell us about the president's economic agenda? What, what's, the, what, what's the role of that person in this administration going to be? Um, I, first of all, I want to say Kevin Hassett is a great pick, and I would love to see him um, confirmed by the Senate for that position, because the role of CEA, um, it has both an internal role and 
there's a large truth to power component of that. Um, CEA are PhD-trained economists. They tend to be much less political. They're much less into defending the talking points um, and more into figuring mm-hmm. out you know, what the truth is. Now, Kevin has a different perspective than me on some issues. I think um, he has too large a notion of what a corporate tax cut to do for the economy, for example. Um, but those are honest um, debates between economists. And I think I'll feel a whole lot better right. if I know there's an economist sitting there making those arguments. When when you look at the numbers that can come out, it all wraps up in fiscal policy. One of the themes of these IMF meetings has been a lot more discussion here of uh, fiscal policy is a good solution for growth and society. What kind of Republican policy do we need? And the, you mentioned Eisenhower earlier. There's a history here of different kinds of Republican policy. What is the best practice of Republican fiscal economics? The best practice to deal with our medium and long run deficit problem would be something along the lines of the type idea Bull Simpson had. And they had two principles. One is you need to do both revenue and spending. Number two, you couldn't do it at the expense exactly. of low-income programs. Why can't we get that and, done here? You know, because you have, an, you have an approach right now that violates both of those. It, rather than raising revenue, it cuts revenue. And rather than dealing with entitlements, it just cuts low-income programs. So it violates both of the Bull-Simpson principles and – that's not a basis for bipartisan agreement. In fact, the history of Republicans reining in the medium and long-term deficit through entitlement savings on their own is nil. There is none of it. The only way to do it is bipartisan. The only way to do something bipartisan is put revenue and spending both on the table. Jason Furman, thanks for the time today. I appreciate it. That's Jason Furman, Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, Professor of the Practice of Economic Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School up in Cambridge. Uh, you start when? Does that start this semester? I'll be uh, moving up there this summer. Terrific. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Jason Furman joining us in our Bloomberg 99.1 studios. We're talking international economics. Olivier Blanchard, among others, will join us in a moment. But right now, we touch on that but digress to this Washington, her Washington. She is Alice Rivlin, who just flat out invented what we do on modern fiscal policy at the Congressional Budget Office, uh, provided public service as vice chairman of the Federal Reserve System as well. Dr. Rivlin, wonderful to see you. You and I were reminiscing about the value of Ben's Chili Bowl yeah. up on U Street <laughs> from, a few, from a few years ago. You used to go up there. Your kids went to school with Ben's kids, et cetera, et cetera. This Washington is so different from when Ben's Chili Bowl was becoming iconic. Does anybody of the elite down here, including the president of the United States, do they understand that a society has to get along and find a common ground? Unfortunately, I think not at the moment. There are plenty of people who do understand that, but our political system is so polarized and our parties are so angry at each other yeah. that we're just not getting anything done. You and I talked of Tip O'Neill in, in uh, uh, President Reagan earlier. Let's take it to the legislative branch in itself. Olympia Snow or Orrin Hatch could provide conversation with the respected senator from Massachusetts, whether it was Ed Brooke or Ted Kennedy. How do we get back to that, to what you knew? 
Well, I think it's going to take both leadership and public pressure. Uh, if you read the polls, you know that uh, the public is just put out with the Congress and their uh, lack of getting anything done. It, the Congress rates very low. It always has, but uh, much lower now. And there is real public anger about the gridlock and about the polarization. But it's very hard to break through. Dr. Rivlin, a few months back, we were talking about a return to regular order on Capitol here. We're going to have a, a regular budget process once once again. Was our optimism misplaced? Yes, I think okay. that uh, the best we can hope for right now uh, is not closing down the government. That's mm. a pretty low threshold, but it's important not to do that. Uh, I think the Congress will essentially, uh, for the moment, ignore the president's uh, very drastic budget proposal that cuts deeply into domestic spending and adds to defense. Uh, they will pass a continuing resolution or rather an omnibus appropriations bill that pretty much keeps things where they are and adds some to the defense budget in the special uh, overseas account. I hope I'm not telling tales out of school here, but last time I spoke with you down in Washington during a break, you said to me, we spend too much time focusing on monetary policy and too little time talking about the Fed's role when it comes to, to regulation. Here we are almost 100 days into this uh, administration, and I wonder what we know about uh, how the Fed is approaching regulation, how the, how the White House would like to see the Fed approach regulation, what shape the, the FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, is going to take here under President Trump. Well, I don't think we know very much, uh, actually. Uh, there's been talk about repealing Dodd-Frank and uh, things like that, but I don't think that's uh, going to happen. We haven't had many clues uh, as to where the administration is going on financial regulation. I think what they ought to do uh, is uh, keep the reforms of uh, Dodd-Frank, which have mainly strengthened uh, the financial system and made us less vulnerable. Uh, they could ease up on uh, the regulations on smaller financial institutions, which are arguably uh, over the top. Within our budget is our military. I believe this week we lost an aircraft carrier. We thought it was up in the northern Pacific. <laughs> yeah, we didn't know which way it was going. <laughs> we didn't know which way it was it was going. Very quickly here, uh, do we do we have a control of our Pentagon budget? Do we, do we know where the marginal billion, in honor of Mr. Dirksen, do we know where the marginal billion or trillion is going? Oh, yes, I think so. Uh, the, pro it's the process is in control. I'm, the process is in uh, control, yeah, and I think you. we now have uh, strong leadership in the Defense Department and uh, General Mattis. Okay. Alice Rivlin, thank you so much for joining us today, for starting thank you. Uh, your day uh, with us. She's a former vice chair of the Federal Reserve System and uh, of interest and a calming influence on my worries about the budget. David Gurr in New York. I'm Tom Keene in Washington at our 99.1 uh, studios in Washington on I Street. I think, David, I'm on I Street. It's like New York, uh, and uh, it's confusing. I, I, my hotel's on H Street, and I'm on I Street, and G-H-I. Yeah. <laughs> it's in, and I, what's cool, folks, is from our office, you can look down New York Avenue and see the Church of Abraham Lincoln. That is way cool. Very cool. Uh, Bloomberg Surveillance this morning in New York, in Washington. Joining us now. 
Um, David Gurr, why don't you bring in Governor Frankel? I think I've, I've talked to him this morning. Why don't you bring in the esteemed Jacob Frankel? Yes, he's the chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase International, chairman of the Board of Trustees, the Group of 30, of course, former governor of the Bank of Israel, Jacob Frankel, joining us on our phone lines. Great to speak with you. Uh, and let me start by by asking you about the agenda for the meetings in Washington today, tomorrow through the, through the weekend here. Uh, to what degree is, is what's happening in the U.S. overshadowing a larger conversation about uh, global growth and the global economy? I imagine there's a lot of curiosity about what's going on, what's being discussed in the White Building just a few blocks away from IMF headquarters. Good morning. Well, of course, there is a great interest, uh, but the United States is not just another country. It is the major country, and therefore, needless to say, uh, there is a great focus on the U.S., but there is also a great focus on the interrelationships between the U.S. and the rest of the world. And in this context, the subject of protectionism comes up, and a lot of people are concerned and are worried. There is a discussion, of course, what is happening now, literally as we speak, both in Paris in terms of the elections, what will happen very shortly in the United Kingdom with the elections. So there is a situation here that the policy structure is still in a formative stage. We cannot now analyze what is the effect of the policies because the policies themselves are still undefined. In the United States, a lot of curiosity is about the budget and about the deregulation, Mm. because uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, in order to carry out some of the agenda that uh, the new administration set for itself, one needs to have the means to finance it. The fact that the health care, the Obamacare uh, uh, revision has not gone through yet from the fundamental issue of the budget means that there is less resources to finance or to cover Mm -hmm. the cost of the tax reform. And this has been a major, major element that created optimism in the market, both the tax reform, deregulation, and fiscal expenditures in areas that are growth producers like infrastructure. These are the areas everyone from the U.S still speaks about these areas, and everyone from the rest of the world is saying, and what about our links to the U.S., and hence the protectionism and open markets uh, out there. I must say that in the corridors, uh, whereas in the past the subjects were always about, about the financial markets and about the economic uncertainty, the atmosphere this time is very different. The IMF has produced the World Economic Outlook document in which the revisions of growth are upwards, not downwards, in which all major regions of the world are growing positively, not mm-hmm. negatively. So this means that the sources of uncertainty are now shifted to the geopolitics rather than the geofinance. Right. And of course, North Korea is an important subject sure. everywhere that you walk. But what is the focus of these international meetings in our modern gilded age, it's widely presumed that the gains of our growth and the gains from our better growth are going to the technology, the elites of society. How do we distribute those gains soon to a greater part of the public? 
You are absolutely right. Indeed, uh, 25 years ago, when I was in charge of the production of the World Economic Outlook, the discussion was about growth. Later on, it shifted to sustainable growth. And subsequently, it has shifted towards inclusive growth. People understand that growth per se is not good enough. And it's not good enough because it is not sustainable. And it is not sustainable if it is not inclusive. So therefore, the recognition that it is important, that the benefits from growth and the benefits from trade and the benefits from good measures are spread throughout society is an integral part of the economic discussion. And this requires, of course, when you make changes, there is a trade adjustment assistance. It has to be budgeted, and it has, therefore, to be part of the priorities. This means that the education system must be reflecting the fact that in the modern world, what one needs to give our young students is not knowledge, but the because knowledge becomes obsolete but the capability of learning, of, of learning in changes circumstances. The, it's a very different mm. setting where innovation becomes important, but where one needs to recognize that the greatest enemy... Sure. We don't want to have a situation in which technological progress becomes the villain, but rather it must become the hope. And the way in which it is sustainable hope is that we pay clear attention, not only in lip service, but in budget, to deal with those who need to go through adjustment. It's part of the society. Dr. Frankel, I want to return to the corridors of the IMF and the World Bank uh, in Foggy Bottom, if I could, and I wonder how much anxiety you're picking up on there about multilateralism and the future of multilateralism. Uh, of course, uh, Secretary of the Treasury Stephen Mnuchin was on stage yesterday with Mark Weinberger, the chairman and CEO of EY, formerly Ernst & Young. This weekend, the Treasury Secretary will be on stage with Madame Lagarde for a conversation. I expect that the, 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 the contours of that conversation will be different. Is, is her job there to make a case for a number of the issues that you were just discussing, make the case for the importance of, the continued importance of the IMF and the World Bank? Absolutely. Uh, Christine Lagarde is the best spokesman, spokesperson for the virtues of globalization, for the fact that if you have an interconnected world, you must create the institutions that facilitate this interconnectedness, that globalization is a, an asset rather than a liability, and that in order to make globalization and a success is that you may you must pay attention to it. Yes. So the international organizations are there. Remember, how did it all start? Mm. It all started at the end of the Second World War, where uh, countries were dispersed, they were antagonistic, they were separated from each other, and it was understood that in order to uh, promote economic prosperity, you must allow the interaction between the countries, which in addition to providing better economic basis, it will also provide the fundamental security against hostilities because everyone will stand to lose if you break a very well-functioning system. Hence, the World Bank and the IMF were created in the Bretton Woods organization. Then people realized that in order to be successful, countries that are engaged in production needs to have the capability of selling those products in the world. And the benefits will be shared through trade. 
Hence, the, the, the World <coughs> Trade Organization was created, and trade agreements were there. It is all not the product of people looking for organizations and bureaucracy, but rather people looking for mm-hmm. mechanisms by which their aspirations can be translated into reality. You can, in, you can invent the best cars in the world. If you don't have good roads, yeah. the cars will not reflect their greatness. So it is all interconnected. Yes, Christine right. Lagarde is the person and the champion today uh, to bring it about. Well, Jacob Frankel, thank you so much, as always, for your perspective on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio uh, this morning. He is chairman of J.P. Morgan International, the former governor of the Bank of Israel, and, of course, his uh, research decades ago at the University of Chicago still speaks uh, today. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news story's relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com Lens. We were talking earlier in the program with a uh, former vice chair of the Federal Reserve, that being one Alice Rivlin of the Brookings Institution. And, uh, you know, we, we focused more on uh, the budget, what's going on in Washington. Of course, she was the two-time director of the Office of Management and Budget, founding director of the Congressional Budget Office. Now we're going to talk to another former vice chair of the Federal Reserve. That's Alan Blinder, uh, Gordon Rentschler Professor, Memorial Professor of Economics and Public Affairs at Princeton University. Professor Blinder, great to speak with you, uh, as always. Help us with this ongoing debate. Our Michael McKee was uh, talking to the president of the Kansas City Fed, the president of the Dallas Fed. The conversation here seems to center on what's going to happen to the Fed's balance sheet. We've introduced a new parlor game uh, into our day-to-day conversation about how this is going to happen and when it's going to happen and, indeed, how much notice we're going to get about it happening. How do you see all of this playing out? Um, I think we can see the dim outlines, although there's lots of details yet to be uh determined even in the Fed, much less announced. Uh, They've decided, for whatever reasons, I think they're probably more good than bad, that $4.5 trillion is too much. And while they haven't given a number, they're probably going to head for something in the ballpark of half that, give or or take $500 billion. (laughs) We're talking large numbers uh, here. Uh, They're going to reduce both the Treasuries and the MBS. They say still, although I have never believed this really, that they're going to do all that without actually any sales, just with runoff. I don't think, my guess is that won't happen in the end, although Mm -hmm. they're certainly going to start with uh, runoff. 
and they're probably going to begin this process. You know, I would say if you're going to make a point estimate, you would say January plus yeah. or minus three months, something like that. And on your last, the last question you pose is the one I'm sure of. Lots of notice. Uh-huh. They don't want to surprise yeah. anybody about this. And now, folks, we go for clarity. Speaking of point estimates, I hate to say this, David, it's 29 years. Young Blinder wrote a book that if you were cool on campus, you walked around with. And it was a precursor to this idiocy over hard data and soft data. Hard hard heads, soft hearts, tough-minded economists. And, Alan, you were a little bit ahead of the debate. Chapter four, chapter four, who will protect us from protectionism? Yeah. I mean, you were writing yeah. 29 years ago about I the know. definitive question right now. I know. You'd, you know, one of my pet peeves about economics uh, is that for in 200 years, so you mentioned my book 29 years ago, David Ricardo wrote The Principle of Comparative Advantage 200 years ago. We've not persuaded that many people. Uh, of the importance of comparative advantage, even though, of course, they lived their lives that way. Nobody lives as an island doing everything for themselves. But we don't have the politics that you were weaned on, and with your Democrat Party support for Senator Kerry, among others, can you do hard heads and soft hearts, tough-minded economics? Can you do that in this Washington? I believe it's extremely difficult. I mean, in this Washington, what we're getting is sort the opposite, uh, hard-hearted and soft-headed, mostly pronouncements, actually. You know, one of the minor frustrations of the Trump administration for an economist is that in terms of economic policy, other than the abortive health care bill, there's been more or less nothing. There's been a lot of talk. We're going to get tax reform. We're going to get this or that on trade. We're going to redo NAFTA. Uh, and there's going to be a budget sometime. But uh, we haven't seen any of this. I put a question to Gideon Rose yesterday, the editor of Foreign Affairs, Peterson Chair at the Council on Foreign Relations. I said, when you look at the, the foreign policy that's coming out of this White House, he said that they're still yeah. finding their way, learning their, their, their way uh, uh, just a, a few dozen days onto the, to the job. Are we seeing the same thing when it comes to economics? Or do you, do you think that there are people in the White House with a grand vision for what Trumponomics is, is going to be? Or is this something they're still learning, still trying to figure out that's still inchoate in the Trump White House? I doubt that there's any grand vision because um, there's the president of the United States. So, you know, Gary Cohn could sit in his office and conjure up a grand vision, but um, he's not president of the United States. He can't make any of this happen. And his boss is, you know, this guy's the opposite of grand visions. He's scattershot. It's, you know, whatever he sees on Fox News the night before or uh, some idea comes into his head and he tweets it out. And this is the same with the foreign policy, by the way. There just doesn't seem to be any there there. Let let me try to find a silver lining on that cloud then. For someone like you, for someone like Madame Lagarde, who's presiding over the meetings that are taking place across town uh, in Foggy Bottom, uh, does that give her, give you grounds for for optimism, that that he is somebody who can be swayed, that cooler minds can prevail here? He's interested, uh, he's, he's changeable in his positions. A little bit, yeah, I mean... A lot of these flip-flops that have been discussed uh, from Trump have been in a better direction, right? Like less hostile towards trade, for example. Um, 
uh, no longer is the Export-Import Bank, by the way, you could argue this either way, but anyway, no longer is it a Benoit, a big, uh, horrible thing that needs to be uh, gotten rid of. Um, the budget and taxes, we'll have to see. One of my themes, uh, Vice Chairman Blinder, uh, for these meetings has been the continued great distortion of nominal and real rates. David mentioned central bank policy up top. Is there even any hope of clearing markets, of getting back to the incentives that drive investment until we get back out of this financial repression? Um, yes, I think so. You know, part of this, Tom, is, is uh, what economists sometimes call money illusion. Yeah. If you live in a much less inflationary world, and we do, that's just the way things are everywhere compared to what was true when we were young, um, interest rates are going to be lower. So we need to focus on real interest rates. And I think there's every reason to believe that real interest rates will go back to something looking more normal. Looks like a bit less than we're accustomed to also, the real rates. Mm-hmm. We'll see about that. Yeah. But but we're not going back to the kinds of nominal interest rates that we became accustomed to. Okay, Let, let's uh, do this. Alan Blinder, thank you so much, Princeton University. Well, he was the chief economist at the International Monetary Fund and migrated over to Massachusetts Avenue to that beautiful modern building that houses the Peterson Institute for International Economics. Olivier Blanchard joins us now on our phone lines. Olivier Blanchard, senior fellow at the Peterson uh, Institute. Great to have you with us here on Bloomberg uh, Surveillance. Let me start just by asking you about your sense of the, the theme for this this weekend's meetings. Tom Keene going into them says the theme is often scrapped early on, that uh, global events will supplant whatever was, was predicted what do you see shaping up as, as the theme here at the IMF and World Bank spring meetings? So I think actually Christine Lagarde captured it well. She said spring is in the air. And I have a sense that that's a dominant theme, which is, uh, for the, you know, I waited. I was for eight years at the fund, and I always waited for the time when I could revise my forecast up. Unfortunately, I left before I could do that. Uh, but my successor has, has the luck to be able to do it. So I think there's a sense that the, the recovery of advanced economies uh, is is for real uh, that it will continue, uh, and that uh, emerging markets are doing okay, and some of them uh, are actually kind of recovering from rather bad bad blows. So I I suspect that that's going to be the theme, and then as a result, the set of issues which comes up is very different, which is you shift from how can we get the machine to go faster to how do we make sure that uh, increases in interest rates or, or overheating in some places doesn't become the, com- the, the dominant uh, worry. So it's a bit early, but I would, I would guess that's where it is. And then in the background, the discussion about populism and what we can do to, to make uh, growth uh, qualitatively different. Uh, but in terms of a short run, uh, first theme, in terms of a medium run, second theme. That's in the background uh, at these meetings. It was certainly in the background of Maurice Obsfeld's report uh, as well. He talked about the risks of, of protectionism. Uh, let's draw that. Let's draw a line from that to, to current events, to the election uh, that we had in the U.S. just a few months back, to the election that's taking place this weekend uh, in France. How, how real a risk, how large a risk is that to global growth going forward? I, I don't think it is a major risk in the in the short run, the next uh, two or three years, because although populism is on the rise, if I look at each country, 
uh, none in no place, uh, no relevant big place, mm-hmm. does a populist look like it's going to be in a position to actually really change uh, macroeconomic policy dramatically or trade policy dramatically. So I don't see it. We can come back to a French election so if you want. But even in France, I don't think that, that the risk is very high. So I don't think that's going to play a major role in terms of affecting growth in the next few years. But to the extent that the underlying reasons for populism are going to be there or even become stronger, uh, then it is clearly an issue for the next five or ten. Uh, the issue will not go away. Uh, Professor Blanchard, good morning from Hi, Tom. Uh, our studios in Washington. There is a paper that everyone has reti- required, David, to read from, I believe it was 1986, Olivier Blanchard and Lawrence Summers, Hysteresis and the European Unemployment Problem. Professor, it has become a world problem. The panel I did yesterday was shocking in the immediacy, the urgency of nations to find investment. What is your formula to find investment, to jumpstart jobs, to eliminate this chronic unemployment and your acclaimed word, hysteresis? Well, I think there are, there are two issues. I mean, there's still, in some countries like the U.S., you know, we're more or less at potential. So the issue is how can we increase potential growth? How can we make the underlying rate, rate of growth uh, higher? In Europe, they are not still there. I mean, some, some are there, Germany is, but the others are not there. You basically need to still increase demand. The priority must be to increase demand. But eventually, when you get back to normal unemployment or low unemployment, you want faster growth. And the answer to uh, how you do that, uh, either in the U.S. or in Europe, uh, we actually don't know. I, what we know is public investment is too low. And so more public investment in many places would be good. And after this, we really don't understand why productivity growth has slowed down. Uh, We just have to hope that given the very high rate of innovation, firms are going to find ways of using it and increase uh, productivity and growth. Um, It has come in the past. For the moment, it seems to be weak. It will probably come back. There are some structural measures that uh, one can take, hoping they'll work. But one should not be too optimistic. Well, Typically, either they don't work or they take very long. I think we just have to accept that these uh, cycles of productivity growth come and go. So potential growth for the moment is a bit uh, mediocre, but maybe it will get better. Yeah. Uh, the only, I think, policy advice is look at public investment. There are places where public investment okay. really has been too low. Public capital is too low. And, this and is the that, sing- that one can work on. Folks, this is the single question of this meeting of international economics. Can we jumpstart investment given financial repression? The fact is worldwide we have this odd interest rate environment. Some would say central bank induced. Nobody's going to blame Olivier Blanchard, but there's a lot of people lined up. Can we, do, do, does our new investment, does our new animal spirit, does it wait for an end to this financial repression? Well, uh, we may disagree because I don't see financial repression. Uh, I basically see in in most countries, I see low interest rates at which many firms can borrow. uh, And I still don't see high investment, high private investment. So it doesn't seem to me that the problem with low investment, private investment, is financial repression. I'm quite sure it was in 2010, 11, 12, and so on. But today, I just don't think it is. I think it's just that firms don't see anything very exciting on the horizon, and uh, they don't see very fast sales growth, and they don't invest very much. If 
uh, demand picks up, which I think we're seeing. I think we'll see more investment. But again, uh, the, the big movements forward of investment tend to come from the ability to use innovations and make them work in your firm. And at this stage, it doesn't seem to be happening uh, on the same scale. So I would, not, I would disagree with financial repression as being, as being one of the main reasons. Just lastly here and, and quickly, as we look ahead to the election in France this weekend, how do you, how do you grade the dialogue about economics in politics right now? Uh, is there a, a, a thoughtful conversation about economics happening in France? Is it happening in the UK as we head to the, to the next uh, snap election there? No, I mean, it is, uh, you know, I think it's a gigantic issue, uh, the, the lack of, uh, of an informed e- economics uh, debate, uh, be it on Brexit earlier or be, be it on, uh, on immigration or on trade uh, in, in the U.S. or being on, uh, uh, on the euro. Uh, what is clear is people look at the past, see the past as having largely, the politicians of the past as having largely failed, and they are willing to basically try change for change. And then you tell them, well, you know, change for change is incredibly dangerous. The experts say, look at what happened to Argentina earlier, what happens in Venezuela. And they say, oh, no, 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 just these are the experts. Let's forget them. Uh, I mean, the degree mm-hmm. to which expert opinion is not respected is quite right. amazing. Now, well, now, you know, it, it, must be, it must be our fault. We're going <laughs> uh, to leave it there. Professor Blanchard, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.